Um, So I'm reading today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through to 12. Living to please God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact... You do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So, just by way of brief, quick summary... And uh, I'm going to look this way, because that doesn't work. Um, we've been looking at Thessalonians, and we've, the theme is gospel family. Um, that's, that's the big idea of the book that um, I wanted to get across to you. And we've seen the last three weeks, uh, in the first three chapters, uh, a couple of things that define a gospel family. The first week, we saw the gospel family celebrate what Jesus is doing in others. So celebrating the wins that you have as a Christian that Jesus is doing in one another's life. Then we saw that a gospel family, they're authentic. They're true to the gospel and one another. And last week, thanks to Peter, he reminded us that gospel families more or less long to be with each other. They want to be physically with one another to celebrate, to be authentic to proclaim the gospel and, and see what Jesus is doing in one another's life. It's a great thing. Gospel families are wonderful things. Today, um, the big idea in the first 12 verses is simply that gospel families live to please God. The gospel families live to please God. I was going to say in my introduction, Australia, but I don't think I can, so I'm going to do the opposite to what Jeff Lynn does, and I'm going to celebrate Adelaide, not Sydney, and you'll see why in just a moment. But in Adelaide, we have a high level of compliance to COVID-19 restrictions. And they say, go get tested, and our rates go up. They say, lock down for three days, and we stay at home after buying all the toilet paper and wine from the shops. They say, don't go here, and we don't. We cancel plans, scurry across the borders, and sometimes get stuck and have to isolate, which some of you have done or are actually doing at the moment. We get a potential whiff of a lockdown, like was going to happen a few weeks back, and the whole world goes to chaos. And then Stephen Marshall says, no lockdown, and we're fine. 
I wouldn't say that joy motivates us for doing that. I wouldn't say that we are doing that to please the government either. Our motivation to obey our leadership was spelled out very clearly to me on a face mask at the footy on Thursday night. Everyone was wearing them, and one of them I saw said, had had, uh, printed on the face mask, it said, we are all in this together. We are all in this together. And I think that slogan was a perfect representation of the pandemic. And it's true, we are in this together. We should be wearing masks uh, for the benefit of ourselves and others. But you know, I was reminded when I saw that, that as a Christian, someone who loves, seeks, serves and follows Jesus, we have a slogan too. Not something printed on a face mask, but one that informs how we behave. One that informs how we live. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12. Live in order to please God. We live in order to please God. Not grumpily, not under compulsion, like we might do with restrictions, but because God is good, His ways are good. Because He is the Creator and the Redeemer, He knows and cares deeply about us and how we behave. Because He is the Creator, He knows exactly what leads to a flourishing life, and He knows what doesn't. Life under God's Lordship at its heart, is love to him and love for others. And in Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 now, the transition of the letter, what Paul does is to turn from encouraging them for what Jesus is doing to now encourage them to keep living to please God, as they are already doing. There's no commands in these first 12 verses. Simply a reminder of what they're doing. And I I hope today that you would hear this too. The great encouragement that comes from these verses. Because in verse 1, if you look with me, he could look back on the time at this time, the short time with this church and say, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Today... I know many of you are living to please the Lord Jesus. Just do that more and more. Would you do that more and more? In all the joy and all the grace that he supplies, in in looking at the beauty of who Jesus is, all for his glory, would you keep living to please God? And sometimes you just need that encouragement to keep doing it. By way of structure, there are two... Uh, how to live paragraphs in this in these first 12 verses. Verse 1 to 8, and then verse 9 to 12. Both are united, you see, in verse 1 and 10, with the repeated phrase, do this more and more, as he gives us two ways of how to live. What are they? What are the two ways that we need to do in order to live and please God more and more that Paul singles out? Not the only two ways, but two of the ways. Firstly, in the first paragraph, is to understand sex as part of their personal holiness, And secondly, to think about work as a way of loving others. They're the two how-to-live paragraphs. Interesting, he combines two ideas we don't naturally think together, sex and holiness, love and work, because it's not intrinsic for us to think this way about those things. Which is why you'll notice Paul emphasised the need to be instructed four times. In verse 1 and 2, he mentions it twice. Then in 4 verse 8, he talks about 
it. And then finally, in 4 verse 9, he says, be taught by God to love and work this way. These are not natural things, but as he says in verse 2, you know the instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are God-given things. And the idea is really simple, actually. To please God, we listen to Jesus. Which only comes from 4 verse 1, when Paul says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important little phrase. It will come back to this at the end, because everything hangs upon this. Because it seems to me, the only way to make sense of pleasing God especially with sex and work, is to do so from a position in Christ. I'm pleasing God not to get accepted by him or earn his love, but I please him because I'm already accepted in Jesus by what he has done. And that matters, that you are in Christ when you hear the rest of these verses. Because If you're in Christ and you fail, and if you're in Christ and need to be encouraged to keep living this way, it's by being in Jesus that you will find grace and forgiveness that will meet you and keep you going in the journey of life. Not in your effort at being perfect or good, but in the fact that Jesus is good and he gives that to you. And his grace is always enough. And so if you're not in Christ, these verses are horrible. But if you are in Christ, they're life-giving. And we'll come back to that at the end. So don't forget about in Christ. So let's look at the first paragraph, how to live. By understanding how sex and personal holiness are connected. So verse 3, Paul insists, he says, uh, that it is God's will that you be sanctified. Sanctified holy is the same idea here. And in this instance, he says, what does it mean? You should avoid sexual immorality. Now, two key ideas are being brought together from the biblical story and what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus here. Firstly, he talks about God's will. It's now spoken of as sexual holiness. God's will is more than that, but no less. Secondly, being holy or being sanctified is not the conversion he's talking about of being becoming in Christ, but he's talking about living a holy life now that you're already in Christ. Because Jesus has accepted me and forgiven me, made me new, I now live a holy life. And this holiness idea, is a, the holiness of God, sorry, is a term the Bible uses to describe God's goodness and his power. Now, when Jesus comes along as the Son of God, he takes God's holiness and he gives it to people. You know, notice in the life of Jesus, he touches the unclean people. He declares their sins forgiven, not from being in the temple, but he's purifying, he's healing people and creation, making us able to live with a holy God once more. And when when you combine that idea with sex, we see that God wants us to understand that his view of sex is holy and good and beautiful and pleasing to him and also fitting for us. Because the point 
is that sex has a bigger purpose in God's agenda than what we realize. It has a bigger purpose in God's agenda than we realize. It's actually to be seen as a holiness pursuit. And that means there's something to avoid. After a holiness has the idea of separation, otherness. He says sexual immorality here. It, it's, in the Greek, it's where we get our modern-day word porn from. A blanket term for limitless range of sexual acts that are consumed or indulged in, but not that is aimed at holiness. Moreover, in verse 4, verse 4, when Paul says that each of you should learn to control your body, it's a very broad meaning. It could mean learn to control your body in the sexual arena, or it could mean learn to live with your husband or wife, your own husband or wife, that's being honourable in sexual harmony, not exploitation, not manipulation. Or it could also mean learn to acquire a wife or a husband in an honourable way, not in a relationship based on nothing more than lust. The broadness that is trying to be conveyed here emphasises the point very clearly that holiness is interrupted by sex that isn't pleasing to God, both outside of a marriage in any shape or form and sexual activity in a marriage that's not aimed at being holy in your relationship. Both of them are in view. And we know relationships and sex, they form a huge part of life that really matters for us. It's not inconsequential that God has built them that way. It's not unimportant that God has designed us like that. It's his idea, not ours. And he cares deeply who we sleep with because he knows that misusing that can inflict great hurt and damage. And he cares about us as a good God and so he tells us about this and how he makes forgiveness and healing available when we do mess this up. Which means in Christ is where we find sexual redemption. When Jesus redeems us, he redeems our purpose of sex, giving us a vision and a venue that is now holy and good after God's design. The golden rule today, which is a good golden rule that you hear over and over again, is consent is what matters. And Paul agrees. In verse 6, he'll emphasize that. It's very true. It does matter. But it's not the full story. God's vision for sex is more than consent. The vision of Christianity is beautiful because sexual freedom and healing and identity comes by being, first of all, in Jesus. And then bringing sex under his lordship and allowing his vision to shape and inform us. So yes, it is a husband and wife and sex for life. Under God, consensual, respectful, honoring, aiming to please God, dare I say worshipful, in all that you do. Verse 4, verse 4 summarizes all of this and says, you just live in a way that's holy and honorable. Practically, and I realize that saying the word practically as we talk about sex is not always the most helpful thing at this moment in time. But practically, hear this, sex in marriage is under grace with nothing to prove. And that's so freeing, isn't it? 
To be so intimate, there's no fear of hostility or shame. Adam and Eve were both naked in the garden in the beginning, before sin. No shame, no guilt, no body image issues. And then once sin entered, they're covered up, hid from God and from one another. And the good news of Jesus is that the words holy and honorable now redefine our view of ourselves and one another in the bedroom. And that's beautiful. But there's a warning here too, isn't there? A caution in verse 6 to 8. It's not just our culture that thinks misplaced sex or consent is important. God does too. He says in verse 6, this, In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Sadly, people do take advantage of others in this area. And God will hold them to account for such things. To take advantage is what sexual desire becomes when holiness and honor is missing. It's to want a person for your satisfaction, their body for your pleasure, but as a whole person, you don't want them. We feel this unjust behavior, don't we? No longer, as the headline of the news, uh, you know, some abuse has been found in some area because it's just so very common now. News report after news report tells us the sad, hurtful, harmful stories of those who have survived this at the hands of others. When we protect our children and our teenagers as best we can, and we want justice for those who are wronged, and that's a good thing. But moreover, Jesus knows the hurt and the pain which some of you have experienced in this way. Someone who stands in a position to serve you with the gospel, as someone who's in the church, I'm so sorry if that has happened to you. And so is Jesus. Abuse is evil. The righteous anger of God is for you and on your side. And we see that because at the cross, evil and sin are not trivial matters. The power we see at the cross isn't to be wielded for those who possess it, but to serve others in love, which is what Jesus did for you. You see, your suffering matters so much that Jesus himself would die to vindicate and heal you. And his forgiveness to you enthrones justice enthrones the justice of God on you. Miroslav Volf, who survived the Balkans War, wrote about that. And you can read more of his writings. Because one day, God will punish and put straight all the crooked lines of injustice because God will not turn a blind eye to those who use his creation wrongly. The future promise is that all sin and evil, even of the sexual variety, will be held accountable before God. And that's good news. And so in summary, as verse 7 says, is just to live a holy life. It's not to get as close to sexual sin as possible, but to flee from it and run towards the good, holy embrace of a beautiful God. To say, where's the line, is to think wrongly. It's to say, go towards holiness. 
So, first paragraph, how to live to please God, being holy extends to even how we conduct ourselves sexually. Jesus is Lord over our bedrooms and our sexuality as much as the sun and the butterflies. Even though our culture says the deepest, most authentic you is found in sex, Jesus says you can find your true self in his gospel of grace, not in our desires or body. And that's a beautiful, liberating way to live. How to live to please God, paragraph two. Well, not only sex and holiness, but love and work, nine to 12. Another sphere that we spend so much of our life in. And to please God at work is to think of it as a way to show love. I'm sure your first thought, as is mine, on a Monday morning isn't typically, how can I show love especially with the meeting with your boss you have at 9.30, or if you need to talk about a project deadline with someone who hasn't met it. You're not thinking love, I'm sure. But you know, in verse 9, Paul says, love is a sign you've been taught by God. Then he says, it's never ending. He doesn't say, I've seen your love, thank you so much, you can tick that one off and move on to something else. He says, do it more and more. Because love isn't a project to complete or a quality to hire, but a way of life that Jesus opens up for us. Which then leads Paul to get specific about this kind of love. So in verse 11, he gives three commands and then summarizes in verse 12 with two reasons why these are important. And we'll just look at the first one today. But what are they? What are the three commands? Firstly, he says, live a quiet life doesn't mean not making a sound. But as Meredith pointed out, it's the idea of being a sticky beak. Don't intrude into the lives of others and be a burden to them. Wearing out your welcome. That's the idea, and it's not loving. Then he says, mind your own business. This is the idea of not doing your work for others' approval or to avoid responsibility. Put extra pressures on others in your workplace. I'm sure you all know of that person at work who never does their job properly, and you have to fix it. I'm sure other people think that of you too, by the way. Because that's not loving either. Then he says, work with your hands. And this is very different in a knowledge-based economy of today. But when Paul says this, he would have literally worked with his hands as a tent maker when he arrived in Thessalonica. Live quietly, mind your business, work with your hands. Three commands. But get this, they are especially important when living as a Christian in a hostile culture, just like the Thessalonians were in chapter 1 and 2. You see, in this town, they were hostile to Jesus and Christians. Paul's aim is that in a place, in a workplace, that is hostile to Jesus, there is wisdom in living a quiet life, in working hard, because not to do that may actually undermine the gospel, you see. There is good evidence to suggest that when Paul got to Thessalonica, he was working with his hands as a tent maker. He didn't always do that. He didn't always revert back to tent making as he traveled around as a missionary. But in this moment, he chose not to give up his trade or burden those around him as he preached the gospel. He used it as a witness to proclaim the gospel that he was preaching. In 1 Corinthians, he would say, don't muzzle an ox, a worker deserves their wages. 
He holds both up very highly, but here wisdom said, I should work with my hands. And he encourages them in the same way as he did in verse 12 when he says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Did you know there is a missional heat surrounding your work life, whether you know that or not? Cultivate a generous, grace-filled life at work is exactly what Paul means and what our world needs to see. It means my work is to love and serve my neighbor. Do you know the difference between a Christian mechanic, a Christian lawyer, a Christian teacher or a nurse, and a non-Christian one? What's the difference? Well, firstly, not a lot because they still have the same KPIs and requirements and job description. So it can't be that. But the way you do that is different. If you're a Christian engineer, whatever you do, work in the government, then you should be seeking to apply God's standard to your role. And that's a love for your neighbour. Martin Luther in the 15th century knew this, and he says, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbour does. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbour does. His point is that your relationship with God is established by his grace in Jesus. And he sends you into the world to work and live out your Christian faith in love and service of others. There's a man I know of who works as a manager in a company. I'll be vague, but you may guess who it is. And he got a call one night, late night, to go out because there was a problem at this job site. So he went. He was there for an hour. When he got there, the power wasn't connected to this building. His work had done the right thing, But someone else, the building occupants, the owners, had to do their part to fix it. And they didn't want to. Wasn't their problem, they said. So for seven days, all these tenants had no power. This happened just a few weeks ago. None at all. Most of them were immigrants. Most of them did not know how to work the system or make the phone calls. They were at the mercy of a landlord that did not want to fix the problem. This person had done his job, his company had done the job, and said, we can't do the rest of our job until you've done that part. This man gets there. People are in tears. They haven't had power for seven days. It's actually not his job on a piece of paper to fix that situation because it's up to the other people. So he calls up a hire company, gets a generator, within one hour, powers back to their house, temporarily, until they can fix it. And one of the women said, with tears in her eyes, thank you so much, you don't know what this means. You see, he didn't have to do that. It wasn't in his job description that day to cost the company more money that night. But actually, the love of Jesus says, I'm going to serve these people. And so he did. Or it's the story of a man I know who was working in the in Outback and he went in with the idea to proclaim Jesus to some people with a friend and they were shearing, shearing season. And they walked up to this farm and they knew that these were two Christian guys and they said, we don't want to talk to you, we're busy, we're shearing. And they both said, well, we'll shear with you for the day. And they laughed, you can't shear sheep. And actually they could, very good shearers and they helped out. And in the afternoon, they told them about Jesus. 
You see, that love for the people was a way to not only proclaim the gospel with that mission or heat, but to serve them and love them too. That's exactly what Paul means. The face mask at the footy said, we're all in this together. Yet by God's grace, we live to please God more and more. That's our slogan. We've seen it in two paragraphs today. The first one, showing love, the love of Jesus in our work. And secondly, living holy as we act and think sexually. Two very difficult, not thought of ideas that by God's grace are put together and presented for those who are in Christ. That's how we do it. Our position in Christ. 4 verse 1. In the Lord Jesus, we do this more and more. It begins with what he has done on the cross. It means when you fail to be holy sexually, when you fail, when you fail at work with the sins of omission and commission, what you do and don't do, and you will, and you need to be encouraged, you already have the grace and mercy you need in Christ. In Jesus, we find the forgiveness a thousand times over you need that meets us all and keeps us going. And as you gather over coffee after church, maybe ask how you can pray and encourage someone to keep living to please God this week. Maybe you do that.